0: Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can, for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com canadaehx Canada EHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there. Pucks and Cups, and From John to Justin, which release every single week on all podcast platforms. Every few months, I like to do what I call nostalgia episodes. I did one on the Beachcombers, I did one on Mr. Dress Up, and now I'm doing one on this show.
1: There's a voice that keeps on calling me. Down the road, that's where I'll always be.
0: The concept of a dog saving people and helping those in danger is not new. It is something that dates back to long before the show The Littlest Hobo ever first graced Canadian television screens in the 1960s. There were movies and television shows that centred around Lassie and Rin Tin Tin, but for Canadians, The Littlest Hobo reigned supreme above them all. Each week, Canadians would watch to see who Hobo would help and watch him as the lyrics state, Just keep moving on. Today, the episodes can seem cheesy, and oftentimes unbelievable in the scenarios, but they scratch that nostalgic itch for many, and even today, you can hum that theme song, and a majority of Canadians will know exactly what you're thinking of. It's such an important show to our cultural heritage, that another great show, Corner Gas, did an episode around a mistaken belief by Hank, that the German Shepherd helping people in Dog River was the titular hobo from television. The episode was even called, The Littlest Yarbo.
1: What is it, what is it, boy? My glasses, you found them. Nice, good boy. What, what, girl? Wait, come back. Hey, guys, guess what? I just met the littlest hobo. The dog? Yeah. You met a fictional character? Maybe he was based on truth. Maybe the littlest hobo was the first ever reality show. Did you ever think of that? Hold on here. If I can see my logo, then her logo's on the outside the whole while giving her free advertising. Come on, guys. I can only handle one weird obsession at a time. Some German shepherd just came up and started to bark at me. See, that proves it. It's the hobo. Well, of course it is. What other dog would think to use the hobo's signature bark sound? Should my logo be on the outside right or outside left? What the hell are you talking about? It's the hobo, and I'll prove it. That would have been cool if that was a real little Hobo, eh, Brent? Brent? I mean, corner G? Yeah, that would have been cool. Word up. Maybe Carol and David were evil, and the Littlest Hobo drove them away to save the town, huh? Oh, you're back. What is it, boy? He's barking at the shed. In here, boy. What are you doing? And let us out of here. This isn't very hobo-like.
0: There's a voice. That keeps on. Calling. So let's look at the history of this uniquely Canadian show. The first incarnation of The Littlest Hobo appeared not on Canadian television but as part of a 1958 American film of the same name. The movie was created by Dora McGowan and was directed in California by Charles Randeau and distributed by allied artists to genuinely good reviews. In the movie The Littlest Hobo arrives in California in a boxcar like hobos of days past. In the movie he assists in trash removal, helps a blind man across the downtown section of a community, spares a boy's pet lamb from slaughter, and is pursued by police responding to a mad dog report. He takes the lamb to the estate of the governor of California, whose daughter befriends the lamb as her pet. A few years later, The Littlest Hobo debuted on Canadian television screens, running for 61 episodes from 1964 to 1967. One interesting aspect of the series was that it was actually produced in colour, but the series was broadcast in black and white and completely shot in British Columbia. The main character of the show was, of course, the German Shepherd, which is not really given a name, but typically referred to as Hobo through popular media about the show. Hobo was typically portrayed by London, who was owned and trained by Charles Essenman. On occasion, relatives of London, including dogs named Toro, Litlan, and Thorn, would act in scenes of the show. London would appear in 48 episodes total in the series, and the other dogs appearing in the other episodes. As for why the main dog was named London, that comes from Eisenman, and his time in England during the Second World War when he survived a German bombing in the capital city. At the time he was serving with the US Army when in July 1944, he was blown through the wall in his office in London by an exploding V-1 buzz bomb. He would say later, quote, That bomb didn't make the slightest preliminary buzz, and the only warning I had was when I heard the guard on the roof shout, jump. I instinctively did and was actually in the air when the explosion came. It blew me backwards right through the wall of the room. Fortunately, the wall was crumbling with that explosion. He would spend seven days in the hospital with an injured hip and back, and he almost lost his index finger which was important to him as he made his living as a semi-professional baseball player in the United States, specifically as a pitcher. After he returned back to the United States, he would continue to play baseball, and in 1956 he joined the Bismarck Barons. It was there he would have his dog London with him. On August 17, 1956, the Bismarck Tribune would write, Before the game, Chuck Eisenman sent his German shepherd dog London through his paces. The dog brought keys from Iceman's car, bowed to the crowd, brought a bat and a broom to the pitcher, ran the bases, brought a ball bag from the mount, told how old he was, imitated a kangaroo, closed a door, turned out a light, played dead, untied a boy, and did a little typewriting. It was because of London that he moved from baseball to dog training, as he would say, I had a nightclub and the dog started showing signs of greatness. I was with San Diego and Los Angeles, and instead of flying with the team, I would drive with the dog. Then Life Magazine did a three-page spread, so I moved from baseball to the dog, even though I was still a decent pitcher. That Life Magazine spread would get London cast in the littlest hobo. Iceman would use his own training methods on the dogs, which taught them to think and understand very specific directions, to recognize colors, and to understand English, French, and German commands. Widely celebrated in the dog training world for his methods, he would take the dogs on tour to offer live demonstrations. In interviews, he stated that he was proud that he never read a book about dog training, but he wrote four of them. One aspect of both the 1960s and 1980s versions of the shows is the number of well-known actors who would appear on them. One of the most prominent was Chief Dan George, who appeared in a 1964 episode. Half a decade later, he would become the first Indigenous person to be nominated for an Academy Award. He was also a celebrated Indigenous writer, activist, and poet when he appeared on the show. Another famous actor was Pat Harrington, who came to fame as Dwayne Schneider on One Day at a Time, for which he won a Golden Globe Award and an Emmy Award. After the series ended, Eisenman would write a dog training book in 1968 called Stop, Sit, and Think, which recounted stories from filming the first series as well. He would also write other books that included updated training material through the years. Of course, the series that most Canadians remember is the second one, which became a part of the Canadian television landscape during the early 1980s. The show likely would have continued on longer in the first version if not for a lawsuit that halted production. The lawsuit centered on ownership of the littlest hobo concept, fought between the creators of the movie and the producers of the new show. The case would go through the courts for seven years and go in favor of the creators of the movie. By this time, though, they were not interested in the show. So it would fall to a man named Christopher Dew, who had worked as an editor on the original series and thought the show could be revived. Dew was able to get the rights from the owners, a contract from Eisenman, and told CTV he would be the producer. They said he didn't know how to do the job. So he said, quote, Get me a line producer, and I'll learn on the job and make sure the show is as true to the original series. We went into production, and it lasted 114 episodes and 6 years. In 1979, CTV did revive the series under the title, The New Littlest Hobo. The series would run for those 6 years, and again would feature the dog training of Eisenman, and in honour of the first series from the 1960s, the dog used in the new series was named London. Isamu would also appear in the first season episode Stand-In as a dog trainer, and then as a dog kennel operator in the sixth season episode Voyageurs. The first episode of the series, called Smoke, aired on October 11, 1979, and centered on Hobo arriving in a small town hit by a forest fire, where he helped save animals from the fire. As was often seen with the series, it had some unique storylines, including in that first episode. A local storekeeper in the town has been selling poison to ward off homeless animals in town. A child eats the poisoned meat outside the store, and the doctor can't come in by plane because of a thunderstorm. So Hobo is parachuted into town with the anecdote to save the child's life. The series, which was filmed in the Toronto region for the most part instead of British Columbia, would air on Thursday nights at 7.30pm, and would actually remain in syndicated reruns on CTV and national networks for the next 30 years. It would also appear on the BBC, which aired the first three seasons on repeat from 1982 to 1989. When filming in Toronto, the hobo appeared at Union Station, CNE, the Science Center, Chinatown, Kensington Market, the Zoo, and even on the subway. Typically, each episode would follow a very similar format A person is in danger, hobo saves the day. Sometimes, the stories would take on a more secret agent type of story. One example of what the somewhat odd series of events that would take place on the show comes from The Hidden Room, an episode that aired in 1981. The synopsis states quote, Hobo comes across an old farmhouse where a young nonverbal girl and her father are being blackmailed into conducting fake seances. By cleverly investigating and manipulating the mechanics of the ruse, Hobo is able to break the blackmailer's hold, stop the fraud, and free the father and the daughter. Other examples include Hobo saving a girl from a poisonous snake and an earthquake in the same episode, helping a supermodel under hypnotic spell, stealing a painting from a criminal safe, and helping a woman lost in the woods about to give birth. For many, those weird plots are just what make the show so fondly remembered among Canadians. The first season was geared more towards American audiences and featured more American guest stars and a higher level of violence, including some murders. From season 2 onwards, the show had more of a Canadian feel, with most of its settings being outdoors in a small town or rural areas, rather than the inner city, and the violence was mostly limited to threats. As with the original series, Eisenman used several dogs to portray the role of hobo, identified as London in the credits. The dogs were chosen based on their appearance to each other, and each dog often had a set of skills that was used in an episode. An example of this is one dog may have been better at jumping into a car and moving through the seats, or another may have been better at catching objects. An interesting bit of trivia for the new series is that one of the dogs used in some episodes was the grandson of the original hobo, London, from the 1960s version of the show. Rob Garrison, a writer on The Littlest Hobo, would describe his first interaction with Eisenman in an interview with Beach Metro, stating, quote, a big gruff man came into the office with four look-alike shepherds. Where's that story guy? That writer? I see what's in that typewriter. Put it in the garbage. And one dog jumped up on the desk, pulled the paper out of the typewriter, and tossed it in the wastebasket. His owner yelled, Hi there, I'm Chuck, and the rest is history. For those who worked on the show, it is a time they remember fondly. Alan Eastman, who directed 42 episodes of the series, would say in a Vice interview, quote, It was a great gig for me. You look back at those things and you think, oh yeah, a dog show. But this was a really great action-adventure show that was shot in the woods. It was a five-day shoot for a half-hour show. We were just off in nature having a good time all the time. It's only years later when you realize those were the golden years. In regards to the dogs, Eastman was always impressed by the ability of Eisenman to train the dogs. In the Vice interview, he says, quote, There were five dogs always. Chuck's training method was based on training the dog's language. He maintained that he could train a dog at about the comprehension level of an eight-year-old. He instructed the dog by basically talking to them. That was interesting and effective. While the first series featured many notable actors, the second series had some big names or soon to be big names in film and television. There are a few, but I'll go through the biggest names that appeared on the show. Al Waxman, better known as the King of Kensington, not only appeared in two episodes of the series in 1983 and 1984, but also directed three episodes in 1984. Waxman would of course become a Canadian icon, and a statue of him exists at Kensington Market in Toronto, where his iconic show took place. John Ireland, a former Oscar nominee, would appear in one episode in 1981, and another Oscar nominee, Jack Guilford, appeared in an episode in 1980. D. Forrest Kelly, best known as Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, appeared as Professor Hal Schaefer in an episode in 1981. Future Hollywood character actor, who has appeared in many different films, Michael Ironside, appeared in one episode in 1979. The Great Abe Vigoda, best known as Phil Fish on Barney Miller, a role he was nominated for three Emmys for, would appear in a 1980 episode. And Daniel McNee, who came to fame in the British show The Avengers, and then appeared in other movies such as This Is Spinal Tap, and A View to a Kill also appeared in an episode in 1980. Canadian comedy icon Leslie Nielsen appeared in an episode in 1980, just as his career was about to take off thanks to his role in the comedy classic Airplane. By far the biggest name to appear on the show, though, was Mike Myers, who appeared as Tommy in an episode of the show called Boy on Wheels. Myers would of course go on to reach international fame thanks to his time on Saturday Night Live, and his roles in Wayne's World, Austin Powers, and Shrek.
1: Okay, pal, come on. Oh, no. Well, we'll get it later. Good thing I brought another one along. Hey, Chris, where'd you get the dog? I never saw him before. He's a real frisbee hound. You two ought to be in the contest. Hey, that's my frisbee. Oh, I'm sorry. Nah, you can have it. I got lots of others. Oh, gee, thanks.
0: Jim Henshaw, an actor who appeared in two episodes in 1981 and 1982, would say of the show, It was the kind of thing where every actor in Toronto was on the show at some point in time. They would bring actors back every season or two because they needed so many people. The last episode of the series would air on March 7, 1985 called Pandora, and it centered on Hobo finding an undetonated Second World War bomb. Over the course of both series, the dogs of the littlest Hobo and Eisenman would appear across the United States and Canada, including on The Today Show, The Tonight Show, Betty White's Pet Set, and the Wide World of Entertainment and the show often did very well in the ratings. In an analysis of its viewers, it was found that 62% of the audience was over 18, which showed that parents and their children were sitting down to watch the show, which was a demographic advertisers loved to get airtime on. Of course, if we're going to talk about The Littlest Hobo, we have to talk about Maybe Tomorrow, the song sung by Terry Bush, which is arguably the most iconic part of the show. Bush would get the gig thanks to Do who said in a Vice interview, quote, I'd known Terry's work from the commercial business and I thought his idiom, his contemporary country and western style, was what I felt was perfectly appropriate for this character. Since the show aired, the song has been featured in a Dulux paint advertisement and in a co-op store's advertisement in 2017 that was Canada 150 themed and featured a dog that looked like Hobo from the original shows. Along with Corner Gas, the show has also appeared in another iconic Canadian show, The Trailer Park Boys, in a clip when Ricky watches Lilith's Tobo in his car.
1: There's a voice that keeps on calling me Down the road, that's where I'll always be Every stop I make, I make a new friend Hi Daddy! Hey Trim, what are you doing out so Silly? late? Hey Rick. How's it going?
2: It's going well. Uh, I've been thinking. Uh, I think the important thing is for you to spend time with Trinity. So the loss, it's gone. Well,
1: thanks, Lucy. I appreciate it. I lost everything. And I'm sorry. I'd give you the money if I had. No.
2: he didn't lose Trinity, so.
0: and now you. I you too. Now I'm going to close out this episode with my interview with Terry Bush about the song that has become an iconic part of Canadian culture. Uh, with uh, maybe tomorrow... You knew Christopher Do, and or he knew you because you were writing jingles and such. Is that kind of how it, it you got involved with with the song? That's correct. And uh, I guess what was the recording process like for that?
2: It was actually <laughs> kind of difficult because uh, John and I wrote the song, and we were both really happy with it. And. Um, we presented it to Christopher and Christopher liked it and but he played it for the powers that be and they didn't like it and so they went to New York and got somebody else to write it, uh, a, uh, a theme song, a jazz version, jazz kind of theme song and nobody liked that Then they came back to me and so then we went and re-recorded maybe tomorrow and still that wasn't Acceptable. <laughs> Even though I was convinced, and so was John, that this song was bang on for the show, and then we went in and recorded it again, and then finally they said yes. So it was not
0: an easy process. <laughs> so looking, you know, when you look back at the show, the song is definitely the the, the defining feature. Other than obviously, you know, London, the German Shepherd. Uh, do you think the show it would have been maybe remembered as well if it had they had used like a jazz version?
2: I don't think it would have had the success that it did have. Uh, I think they made a mistake when they did do the show because they did it on videotape. And videotape wasn't great back then. Mm-hmm. They should have gone to film, but CTV didn't want to spend the money. So In 120-some-odd countries worldwide, so it was pretty darn successful.
0: Oh, absolutely. With, with the recording, uh, did you have kind of a mindset? What were you envisioning when you were uh, going into to sing the lyrics?
2: Well, to be honest with you, I got Christopher told me what the show was about. And I called up my buddy, John Crossan, and he wrote the lyrics in, in a day, sent the lyrics back down to me. John and I used to do jingles. He was in a copywriter for an advertising agency. And he sent the lyrics back down, and I read the lyrics, and I just called him back up, and I said, these are bang on, John. You've, just, you've nailed what this show is all about. And then I sat down and it wasn't difficult to write the song, the the music and the lyric, or the music melody for the song, because John's lyrics were so darn good. And so I had that written in a day. And so going in to sing it wasn't a problem at all, because I I loved the song. I thought it was a great song.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: And and it captured what the little doggy show was all about.
0: (laughs) Had you seen the uh, the original series or the movie before you recorded the song? I had heard of it, but I, no, I had not seen it. Okay. And then what was it like to kind of see your, hear your voice uh, every week for six years uh, on national television?
2: Well, I didn't watch it every week. <laughs> Busy doing jingles and other things, and, and to be quite honest with you, it's Not to put it down, but I just thought, oh, it's a nice little doggy show. Mm hmm It's like a lassie, about, not (laughs) in league as a lassie, but it's a dog show, and John and I did it, and we were happy with what we did, and frankly, didn't think much of it, didn't think it would do anything, didn't think it was gonna be huge anywhere. And it really wasn't until the year 2000 that we heard that it was so hugely popular in in
0: Britain. Mm -hmm.
2: Singing the song at the end
0: of the night at and pubs. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody had told you, uh, you know, 40 years ago that this little song that you made or that you uh, that you sang for the show would be, you know, essentially part of Canadian culture and people who weren't even alive then would be able to sing the lyrics, would you would you have believed them?
2: No. <laughs> I really wouldn't have. I'm John was and, and God bless him up there in heaven humbled by the success and, and how much that song has meant to people and we've received letters from all over the world from people saying thank you
0: and how it put them into tears at the end of the show mm-hmm. really
2: amazing Still, it still blows my mind
0: Is it amazing, like you said, it is pretty amazing that it's had such lasting power, Uh, and then it's been on, you know, other shows like Corner Gas, Trailer Park Boys, it's been in uh, several commercials, why do you feel like it has this wonderful staying power that, you know, so many Canadians know this song almost off off by heart?
2: I don't know, (laughs) as I say, I mean, I think it's a nice song, it's a good song, but who knows what? What what's successful, you know? You just never know what's going to be huge, and that song has become huge
0: worldwide. You meet people, uh, you know, and you may, off, and you mentioned that you you sang that the littlest Hobo song, uh, maybe tomorrow. Do they get you to sing lyrics or anything like that, or they just want to talk to you about about the song and what it meant to them?
2: No, I'm I'm, I'm always willing to break out into song. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud. of it what it did and, and what
0: it still does for people um, if they did a if they did a remake of the of the show you know how they're always doing remakes now uh, would you would you be up for singing the song again uh, and do you feel like you know that song would have to be part of it for it to be successful in a place like Canada I'd absolutely be part of it there's there is talk
2: of redoing the show Christopher talked about it and maybe doing the show again.
0: And uh, you released the song on, uh, on uh, yourself, uh, I think in 2010, was it?
2: Yeah, it was after we found out that the success of the song, how popular it was in England, and it was on the, the National Westminster Bank commercial, an award-winning commercial. That we saw how popular it was, and I thought, geez, why don't I release this? And I've had many people write me and say, why didn't you release the original version? And I thought
0: write back to them and say, well, the original version was 55 seconds long, so that's <laughs>
2: not long enough for a record. That's when I decided to re-record it as best I could, being as faithful as I could to the original sound. And John wrote uh, another verse, and, and we put it out on CD. So it's it's available at littlesthobo.com, and it's also available on iTunes and Spotify,
0: When people talk to you about the song, does when they say what it meant to them, like, for example, for me, I I always found The Littlest Hobo uh, and the song to be kind of a a sad song, because, you know, the dog, for whatever reason, just never gets a home. I don't think it wanted a home. But uh, do people, does the impact it had on them, does it vary? Do some people see it as a happy song? Some people see it as a sad song or a melancholy song?
2: No, it's the sadness of the dog leaving at the end of the show, because the show, I must admit, I give Christopher a heck of a lot of credit for that, that you start watching the show and it is a little doggy show, but by the end of the show you're in love with that dog, right? And then the dog leaves, (laughs) and then our song comes on, and so uh, people, as I say, they cry when they hear the song, the dog left, (laughs)
0: even
2: even though it was coming back next week, right?
0: (laughs) and he he essentially chooses to be homeless he you know he he's going his own way kind of thing oh well, he's a hobo. yeah exactly <laughs> um and what kind of reaction do you when you perform it um do do people sing along with it does everybody know the words uh depending where you perform it obviously i've never performed it anywhere because i'm retired
2: now oh. and have been from from uh, the music business and the, and i was basically in the jingle business so i've uh... I played with a band called Robbie Lane and the Disciples. Uh, we used to play for Ronnie Hawkins way back when, and, and I was playing in that band, but I never really performed the song anywhere.
0: And is it is it nice to know that you, you have this song that has such staying power that'll, you know, be around for probably another 40 years? I don't know that it'll last that long, Craig. Well, it's Do lasted you? this long.
2: <laughs> but it has lasted this long. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It's amazing.
0: And then uh, just the last question is, you know, if anybody wants to uh, get in touch, you mentioned your website, if they want to buy the CD or uh, find it anywhere, or if you're on any social media, uh, where can people learn more and find out about you and the song?
2: LittlestHobo.com, as I said to you. Mm-hmm. It's on there, and I'm, I'm more than willing to sign a copy for them and, and send it off. Perfect. And as It's on iTunes as well. It's on uh, Spotify. You can download it.
0: While the show is off the air, many episodes still exist on YouTube. And if you start humming Maybe Tomorrow Anywhere in Canada, chances are someone around you is going to remember exactly where that song comes from and the little show that found its way into Canadian hearts.
1: (music) There's a voice that keeps on calling me Down the road, that's where I'll always be Every I stop I make, I make a new friend Can't stay for long, just turn around and I'm gone again Maybe tomorrow I'll want to settle down Until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on Until tomorrow the whole world is my home
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode of Canadian History X. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaeHX.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com/slash Canada EHX, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Lori Ann Kirby. Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron ohara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, JP Baer, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. As well, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G, B-A-I-R-D. And don't forget, you can find me on Instagram. Just search for berdo 37 Information comes from Vice, Wikipedia, IMDB, TRNTO, KevinMcCordyTV.ca, BlogTO, Beach Metro, and Baseball in Wartime. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.